This is exactly right. Hello. We want to take a second to tell you about one of our favorite podcasts, Disgraceland. If you like music, pop culture, and true crime, this is the podcast for you. Through host Jake Brennan's deeply researched storytelling, you'll hear all about the lives and crimes of musicians like Jerry Lee Lewis, Jay-Z, The Rolling Stones, and so many more. And now Disgraceland is expanding to include artists, actors, athletes, and other icons from Anthony Bourdain to Andy Warhol. Full episodes are released every Tuesday. Check out Disgraceland on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Goodbye. Welcome to a very special episode of My Favorite Murder. The 200th episode. It's Can't You Feel It? Can you feel it in the air tonight? Can you feel them stacked up around us? Can you feel all the homework we've done for you? That's 400 (laughs) book reports, poorly researched, sometimes not accurate, passionately delivered. I was absolutely doing that. Have I already covered this case today of the case I'm doing? I, I, I know I have, but... It's the it's such a great irony, the amount. And I know I've said this a thousand times, but the way in high school I spent all of my brain power figuring out how to get out of doing homework, mm-hmm. how to get out of writing book reports, how to how I would stare at the cover of Silas Marner and go, I'll make up what this book is about and I'll <laughs> trick an adult and they'll believe me. And it works. Ugh. All just to lead to this point in our lives. Two college dropouts. Hating homework. And look well, look at us now. Boom. Loving homework. Everyone, <laughs> you can do it too. If you can write a five-page report and then admit you were wrong later. I think that's the key to podcasting. <laughs> yeah. It's about the humility of knowing everyone knows more and better than you. That's right. And you're going to be wrong sometimes. And... To and 99% of the people, it's okay. It's okay. And then to, and to 60% of those people, it's fun <laughs> because then they get to go, actually, right. this is the one I'm obsessed with. And then we learn something. We do the talking, recorded talking. Then you have to write in right. old fashioned style. Right. And then we have a group hug. And then we get to 200. Yeah. And that's when we announce the platform change where all of this is we're now going to be doing. Yeah. Oh, we're now going to be doing improv. Oh, uh, you didn't know. Great. You didn't get my um text. How are we going to do improv? Message? We've been doing um we've been doing this off script for so long. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to start improving. You've got to forget about memorizing these lines that you memorize every week. <laughs> Just don't worry about Shit. it anymore. OK, not an Ooh, issue. They're gone. Can I just say this? Uh, so we've just gotten back from our UK tour mm-hmm. along UK and Ireland tour. UK, sorry, UK, Ireland with their company retreat to Barcelona right. at the end. Um, a wonderful time all the way around. One of the highlights of that trip was that we actually got to fly Lufthansa Airlines. <laughs> and that is the fanciest airline. Yeah airplane 
executive lounge oh. I've ever seen in my life. They had a like a Christmas cookie setup. <laughs> it's, I've been telling everyone you about have? it. Yes. Oh my god! <laughs> it was just this like Chris, German Christmas cookie. Like it looked like a, like a um, puppet play was going to come out from behind it. Yes, it was like a little shed yeah. that you'd come upon in in an enchanted wood. Right. And and I, as I explained to my dad, not not five different kinds no. of cookies. Literally like thirty totally. different cookies and candies. I think what you loved about it is that the um, air hosts, what are they called? Flight attendants. Is that the flight attendants <laughs> hated us? Yes, <laughs> they were. They were these two lovely blonde German men who clearly were sick of our shit. Yes, even though we hadn't done any shit yet. No, but I think it's a cultural. Um, I which I kind of enjoy because it's actually very Irish as well. They're the type of people that let you know you're going to have to earn this. Even though I am here to serve you, I'm also not really here to serve you. I feel like, though, I have this preconceived attitude as a Jew that (laughs) I don't fucking need to earn this from you. I've done enough. Friend. True. Sorry. But yeah, I, I think I have this automatic, like, I don't want those fucking Christmas cookies then. Yes. Well, I don't fucking want this cheese. Well, I don't want... I don't know. No, I think it's a, that's a good way to kind of, um, try to, try to change the, uh, dynamic. Mm -hmm. It's an effective way. If you had the kind of weird upbringing I had, there's a challenge in, Mm. oh, you hate me. Now give me, let's mark it on the clock. Give me an hour. You're going to love me, (laughs) which I have to say by the end of that trip. And it was a very long one. By the time we got home, I had both of those guys searching, almost breaking down my seat, looking for my one lost, uh, Earbud. Did you find it in your pocket later? He, they found it, oh, and they did? it wasn't in the chair. It would had slid into the magazine holder next <gasps> to the chair. Brilliant! It, impossibly. They almost, they almost mechanically removed that chair from the airplane. They were breaking it down. I kept touching their backs, going, That's "Honestly, a- <laughs> I'll just buy another set. It's my fault on me." Oh, that sounds so sweaty. And do you know that they they didn't find it while I was there? He, as we were driving home, they sent me a picture. Shut they had up. found it and stuck it in an envelope. This is how full. Sur- See, they don't Would need they to be done nice that to if your it was face. Me? Would they have done that if it was me? Listen, you guys have a different history. Okay. It's a different setup. <laughs> but maybe because I was like, I'll take the loss. Yeah. I'm not making you do this. Please stop doing it. And they wouldn't stop looking. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, and we found it. Now it's in an envelope. Now it's on the way to your wow. house. Wow. <laughs> Full fucking service. But also the most beautiful executive lounge. Yeah. Like, I wanted to live there for the rest of my life. I'm definitely getting the couches that were in that. You should go back. Uh, just have a vacation in the executive lounge. Just at the cookie shed. Right. I'll stand at the cookie fucking shed. Right. It's there year round. Even though it's Christmas, because it's Germany. Don't worry about it. (laughs) They do what they want. Can I tell you, can I change the subject? Please. The Confession Killer on Netflix. Oh. Which we've done an ad for. Mm -hmm. I I fucking took the time to watch it. Oddest Tool? Fucking good. No, it's Henry Lucas. There's a little Oddest in there. Oh, okay. But I really didn't know that whole... I just kind of never read anything or listened about him, because I was like, fuck this mass fucking serial killer. I don't care. Yes. But then I watched this fucking documentary, and... There's twists and turns and it like fucking there's like a whole law enforcement thing that like maybe like, you know, turns on this person and there's all this crazy shit going on and the victim's families having to deal with him confessing to like over 300 murders. So then they're excited that that they could get answers. And right. Then... And I don't want to say what happens, but like that he didn't do that. Uh, 300 murders. No. It's a totally different story. And it's a really good fucking documentary. Awesome. 
Because yeah. I have to say there's been a couple people, either people have brought up to us or that we've heard about or whatever, where I'm like, I don't know, I might be at my saturation yes. point in terms of just basically all of these are roughly the same. We just keep telling the same story over right. and over again, this essentially. isn't because he, I mean... It's astounding. And yeah. it's kind of like frustrating to watch because it's he was given a chance to confess to all these murders and the way it happens is really frustrating. And, yeah. and so it's it's a hard watch because you get really like worked up and upset. So it is hard, but it's different in that it's it's kind of it's just well done. It's oh, good. Really I'm going to I'm going to watch it. Then. Yeah. There's the other one about the Nazi that lives next door. Oh, I started watching that, too. Too upsetting. Too upsetting. Yeah. I don't know if it's him. I never finished it. I don't know if I'm going to start. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. There's so much. Um, you know what I've been watching huh. uh, since I got back? And maybe it was a little bit of like to wean me off of yeah. the, the entire Ireland UK experience. There's season three of Toast of London um, oh, is on, and it's no. the Matt Berry's British series. That character mm -hmm. Stephen Toast, who is <laughs> he's a, he's an actor, but he mostly does voiceover. It's the funniest series. It's incredibly so inc intentionally offensive. Yeah. So watch. Be careful who you recommend it to. Oh. I made the mistake of being like, Dad, you're gonna love this, and then forgot that there's like so much like just gratuitous sex and insane. <laughs> oh no. Where I went, oh what, what? I remembered this as just being kind of funny in general. I Why forgot. You you recommended soft porn to your dad. <laughs> dad, you're gonna think this is hilarious. But anyway, it's um I I watched that so quickly, like the yeah. second I got back. I got it. I needed I took I stayed home for like three days after we got back. It Dude, was so nice. We were making plans. We were we were RSV being yes to parties. Oh my god. We were doing things that in in the moment I knew we weren't gonna do it, yeah. but I was like, but I should. Yeah. Cut to three days after we got back, and I was still on the couch like, is it 7 a.m. or 7 right. p.m.? I have My no problem idea. is I don't want to go out after dark, and right now it turns dark at like 5 o'clock. Yeah. So I don't, I like, I'm home till like 3 doing shit, and then I have a two-hour window to leave the house, <laughs> which I usually don't want to, and then it's night, and I don't want to. Yeah. That's right. It kind of all starts to shut down. Yeah. It's like we live in a... Uh, on the North Pole now or something yeah. where it all gets a little low key. And also my energy just is slowly sapped all day long. Right. So then it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm too old to like go out at night. No. And the thing is, I have a fireplace now, too. Mm, cozy. Damn it. Cozy. Cozy. Yeah. My heater was broken. No, not to complain. Complain. But when I got back, my heater was broken and my house has like a tile floor. It was so cold that I was wrapping the dogs up in blankets Aww. and myself up in blankets and we're all on the couch. Like no one left the couch because it was so cold. When I was like sitting up watching TV, I was wrapping blankets around my, oh my God. around myself like it was a Game of Thrones costume. Meanwhile, your fucking jacuzzi sitting out there being not used. Meanwhile, you all could have got in together. We sh I should have forced the dogs into the jacuzzi. <laughs> Don't you like it? Guys, you'll we'll have like a it. soak. We'll relax. <laughs> we'll talk about stuff. I know you're mad that I was gone. Um, Can I do a quick merch plug? Please but do. This one's really, this isn't just your regular merch plug. We now have a bunch of new um, designs and a lot of Christmas and holiday items. Yes. It's so exciting. Some great ones. We have the Stay Sexy and Do God 
God's Mission holiday design, <laughs> and it's we have it on stay ornaments. Stay saved and do God's mission. shit. Stay saved and do God's mission. Yeah. We have it on like sweaters and t-shirts and on ornaments. It's so fucking cute. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a Sprankers design. Love it. We have a new Elvis design. We have a Yeti Truthers design, which is the cutest thing I've ever seen. All you Yeti Truthers out there, you finally have a t-shirt. That's right. That speaks for you. We should have had it be in, um, double-sided. On the other side, it says, I don't believe in Yetis. And you can pick which one you want to be t- to wear. <laughs> you mean like turn it inside uh-huh. out? <laughs> nice. Next time. Um, and we have a you're, in a, you're in a cult. And then we're also pairing with this really incredible uh, murderer named Abby Paulhus, who is this incredible artist. And she's doing some wrapping paper for us. Yeah. And she's doing um, like this really cool uh, December like gift calendar for us. She's so fucking talented and we love working with her. Yeah. So that's exciting. There's ornaments, there's clothing, there's mugs. So check it out at myfavoritemurder.com in the store. So many gifts. So many gifts. Too. Oh, and you can buy people now um, a fan cult membership yeah. as a gift. And that's we a good also, gift. yeah. And affordable. We have a black and white My Favorite Murder logo pin and all of the proceeds of that are going to rain. Yeah, that's awesome. So you yeah. can actually get someone something and then yeah. feel good about the fact that you're actually giving. Right. Do it twice. And their leather jacket looks cool. Yeah. It's just a rad pin. Bonus. Yeah. Nice one. Nice plug Thank for the you. holidays. <laughs> Does it feel good to get back into plugging? I've never I've never gotten out of it. Yeah. <laughs> You're 24-7. That's why you stay home so much. Hey, Vince, have you seen these (laughs) great new shoes? Check it out. You're going to love them. They're called Crocs. (laughs) (laughs) Georgia won't stop plugging shit for me. I don't know what to do about it. That everything? I think so. Okay, great. Okay. You know, if we think of it, we'll say it in the middle of the show. Isn't that the kind of structure we've always uh, adhered to? It's been 200 episodes. If you don't know how the structure is yet. Then keep listening. <laughs> then keep listening because we'd love to know if there is a structure right. or we if there's something we should be looking into structure wise. Yeah. And we love that you're here. We're here too. Yeah. God, it's almost been four years actually. It's crazy. Fuck. Two hundred seems like hardly any. It doesn't seem like a lot. For what it feels like we've experienced. Yes. You know what I mean? To me, this feels like f- 2000. I was going to suggest that we both go back and listen to episode one, but then I'm like, why would I do that to us? No, no, <laughs> no. Why would I ever do that to oh, us? Oh, God. It will just change everything. I was going to suggest that we restart the Facebook page <laughs> <laughs> and, and just really dig into some just opinions. Walk away from it all. Opinions. <sighs> uh, well, you know what? It's been a, just a true explosion. It's been a whirlwind. And it's so exciting, like having just been in Ireland, the UK, and uh, parts unknown. It's been so awesome to meet people face to face who are like, I'm as I'm as excited as you are, yeah. or I feel like I've been there with you. Or I'm proud of you. I'm that pr- uh, I'm proud of you that we get sometimes from yeah. the mom daughter combos. Yeah, is it kills me. It is so great. It gets me good, and it's so nice. It's like it's. It's what I love about touring, aside yeah. from all the clapping, um, <laughs> is really that kind of face to face like, hey, like I've done this with you. And yeah. and all the stories, it's just the coolest. It makes Those it stories. tangible. It makes it tangible. And people saying like, I wasn't sure. Now I'm like, now I'm changing my major to criminal yeah. justice. That kind of stuff where... We're, first of all, we say it all the time, but we get credit for shit yeah. we should not get credit for. But just the idea that we're like the part of these people's lives totally. 
it's and in 200 episodes in this in this way. It's like in a way that you can't understand sitting across the table from me right now with Stephen in the corner. With Stephen eavesdropping the whole yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> giggling into his face. <laughs> I'm sorry, giggling into his hand. <laughs> you just don't get it. If you could see Stephen giggle into his own face, you it's the giggliest. I think that technically we've been doing this podcast to make Stephen laugh in the corner <laughs> this whole time when we learn that other people listen to it. That's the most surprising part. It's more than Stephen giggling into his face. It's so much more than that. And you and we get to learn every time we we do leave the house yeah. or leave the state or the country, then we get to learn what that means. So it's really nice to learn it because that's kind of our perspective is, I would say, the weirdest. Yeah, it's the most it it's myopic of all. Surreal. Oops. OK. <laughs> if you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into, whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve. The key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. Um, okay. Do you okay. want to start your thing? I, I go first. Okay. Right? Yes. Oh, shit. Wait, this is out of order. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's not how this starts. Wait a second. It does not start in the... Oh, shit, Stephen, I do need you to print some stuff. Sorry, my printer ran out of paper. Oh, you did? I just need page one through five. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm actually a little nervous about this one. Okay. Because it's a big one, and a lot of people know a lot of shit about this. Yeah. And a lot of people have a lot of theories. Okay. And I don't want to get anything wrong. 
JFK? Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, no. Are you about to enter into some Jack the Ripper territory? (laughs) (laughs) No. Okay. I'm about to do uh, The Disappearance of Johnny Gosh. Wow. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And this one has levels. And this one has fucking twists and turns. Or does it? It depends on who you ask. It's... It, any way you slice the story, it's so incredibly heartbreaking, yep. obviously. But this is just such a painful way that something like this could go. Totally. I mean, it's very similar to the Jacob Wetterling case, which we covered a couple episodes ago. But it's got different twists and turns just because of the nature of the parents, the law enforcement, the you know the public. Um, but it's similar. So I got info from a ton of Wikipedia info. Uh, Des-, Des Moines Register... JohnnyGosh.com, which I think is run by his mom, mm. the New York, a New York Times article, an article on Owlcation, Owl, O-W-L-cation. The animal? Yeah. Okay. By Annette Sharp and um, a couple articles in Medium by the True Crime Times and also the documentary Who Who Took Johnny. Yep. That's what it's called. The Netflix documentary? Yeah, the Netflix documentary Who Took Johnny, which is so good and heartbreaking and I highly recommend it. So I'm going to give you a little... Um, a little taste. Of okay. It. Here we go. Okay. And please feel free. I know you know the story really well, really well too. So please not, feel not, free. Definitely not really well. Okay. This is, this is one of those ones that because the family pain is so on the surface and Palpable. so, uh, so a part of it, I, it, it's hard to read. Got it's it. not a, it feels like one of those ones. I, I definitely prefer true crime stories that are like, it happened long ago. It was one and done yeah. or whatever. Like the, the group thing happened and ended. Obviously not for everybody, but like, I don't know. There's something about the mother continually yeah. trying and I want to see the, you know, and feel and experience what people went through and it helps me understand the story more. Yeah, completely. Oh, and the one thing I would say that changes because of recent things that that makes it probably much more satisfying and it's bringing it up to a different level mm-hmm. as you as you point out is the fucking Epstein story. Yes. That breaks that suddenly okay, totally. I'll it let you get into it but like 100% let's talk about that. It's that thing of like it what used to be a conspiracy theory right. merely 10 years ago, merely 5 years ago right. is suddenly now, oh no, this is absolutely possible and real and who knows. 100%. Okay. We'll get into it. Okay. Um on Sunday, September 5th, 1982, in the city of Des Moines, Iowa, which we've been to, it's a very charming city. Yes, we love that place. Um, it was West Des Moines was then an upper middle class suburb of about twenty two thousand people. Twelve year old Johnny Gosh leaves home before dawn for his regular paper route, <clears throat> which a lot of kids did in the eighties and nineties. It's a totally normal thing. The thought of my kid going out in the dark before dawn would would scare the shit out of me, but it was a totally normal thing back then. People didn't know that predators were lurking. And in fact, a lot of people didn't even know the word pedophile. They didn't know what that was. Yeah. So um, such a different time. I know. So he goes out from his paper route. He's in seventh grade and usually um, he's accompanied by his dad. But that morning, for some reason, he didn't wake his dad up. He wanted to do it alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's heartbreaking. But instead, he takes his red wagon and the family's miniature dachshund Gretchen and heads out to pick up his newspapers at the newspaper meeting place. Right. I'm sure there's a name for it. It's where they like rubber band the papers and they collect all their papers and head like off. Like the, the warehouse. Or yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Where? Uh, the the warehouse. warehouse. And that's the last time any corroborated sighting of Johnny Gosh occurs. 
So catch around 6 a.m., John and Noreen Gosh, Johnny's parents, they begin getting phone calls. And those phone calls are from the people who were supposed to receive newspapers on Johnny's route who hadn't got them. And they were like, grr, 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 and shit, Sunday morning, you know. Yeah. Um, Johnny had never missed a drop off before. So, of course, his parents are worried. His dad goes out to search the neighborhood. Just two blocks from their home, he comes upon Johnny's, you know, wagon that he had been pulling full of undelivered newspapers. Fucking Gretchen. True to the fucking end is sitting there waiting. <sighs> what did she see? Uh, what did she see? What did she see? I know. That poor baby. Uh. By all accounts, Johnny wasn't the type of kid to run off at all. He would never have left his dog and his delivery behind. He was saving money to purchase a dirt bike. So there's no reason why he would have just fucking left. But it's not a thing. Yes, it's not a Especially thing. Especially at 5.45 in the morning. It's not like he saw some friends and ran off to like hang out with them. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. The Goshes immediately contacted the West Des Moines Police Department and report Johnny's disappearance. Of course, like any fucking parent would. Up until this point in history, children's disappearances weren't treated any differently than adults' disappearances, right. which is fucking crazy. So crazy. There isn't even a national database of missing children. So while the police had the ability to record and track information about stolen cars, stolen guns, even stolen horses mm. with the FBI national crime computer, there's no database on stolen children. Isn't that the weirdest, like the blind spots yep. that when they are discovered, it's like if you told that to anybody, I think at that point in yeah. time, they'd go, how is that possible? Right. Because you assume these things are taken care of or right. you assume everyone's gone over things point by point. Right. And figured this stuff out right that's exactly right insane but i think that also has to do with like you're in charge of your own kids everybody keeps to themselves you know totally. if you slap your kids around at home it's none of my business everyone hey. you know no seatbelts smoke in the car if again kids were second class citizens like crazy until very recently absolutely yeah so the police and it's part of the reason that they're i feel like you'll see but they're not is because of this case so it's it's an important one yeah so the police are just 10 blocks away, but it takes 45 fucking minutes for them to get to the Gosh's house. And once there, they say there's no evidence of a crime. So um, they suspect Johnny's just a runaway, as they always did. So the Gosh's also aren't legally allowed to file a missing persons report for 72 <gasps> fucking hours. Really? Yep. I thought it was 48. It's just dependent on the state, I oh, think. Shit. 72 hours of your your 12-year-old being fucking missing. So the cops are like, goodbye, good luck, fuck off. Um, but Noreen Gosh is a fucking force. This woman is like the the backbone of the story. She is like having none of this bullshit. She immediately begins phoning friends and family and organizes a search party. The whole community seems to rally around the Goshes because this kind of thing doesn't fucking happen in Des Moines. It's like a, it felt like a small town, a small community, and this kind of thing didn't happen. Um, so residents are shocked that something like this would happen in their community. Meanwhile, lo local law enforcement was shockingly indifferent in Johnny's disappearance. In fact, according to Noreen, police chief Orville Cooney showed up to the park where neighbors and friends were congregating in order to do their own search. There's about 20 people getting together, planning their search for Johnny. The fucking police chief shows up allegedly some say he was drunk and he stood on a picnic table and through a megaphone yells to the searchers that they should go home because quote johnny because johnny was quote just a damn runaway what the hell uh-huh but i mean it doesn't make sense because it's one thing to say that that's your theory or that's how the, the police stance it's another thing to fight the people who are trying to take action exactly 
Well, this is what fuels the cover-up stories that, or this is what fuels the cover-up um, conspiracies that come after. Okay, and I, I, there's so much more to this. I can't overstate how little the police and FBI as well gave a shit about Johnny going missing. She would not stop trying to get them to do something and they fucking wouldn't. They said they didn't have a crime and she'd be like, quote, I don't have a son. Mm. That's like the fucking proof. Yeah. They'd openly mock and threaten her when she tried to get help from them. And they tell her, you know, all these crazy things and just completely discount her. And she was having none of it. So, in fact, this fucking Orville Cooney guy allegedly began spreading the story that Johnny was not the Gosh's real child, but was actually adopted. And that's why he ran away is to find his real parents. So fucking Noreen had to produce Johnny's birth certificate and publish it in the newspaper to, produ- to even prove like she's trying to find her son. And this person is working like actively working against her. Well, slandering her. Exactly. That's crazy. Yeah. So so allegedly Orville had a reputation as the town drunk. He later left the department and just disgrace of course there's some witnesses and people in the neighborhood who come forward with um, information about that morning first of all at the newspaper depot place a father and his kid remember a man in a car asking johnny for directions Mm -hmm. fucking red flag Mm. don't ask children where to go and then when the father approaches the man um quickly drives off and according to the kid johnny said that the man had creeped him out and like took off to get away so later, while on his route, a neighbor reports that he watched from his bedroom window as Johnny was talking to a stocky man in a blue two-ton- two-toned Ford Fairmont with Nebraska plates. Remember Nebraska. Okay. The Goshes distribute over 10,000 posters and flyers with Johnny's picture on it. They sell these chocolate bars that have his picture on it um, in order to raise money to hire a private detective. She, Noreen contacts local and national media to cover the story. It's seen nationwide. She goes on all these programs trying to get help to find her missing son. Ultimately, authorities aren't able to uncover any evidence as to Johnny's whereabouts or any motive to his fucking kidnapping and they find no suspects in connection with the case. Then two years after Johnny disappears on August 12th, 1984, another Des Moines area paperboy disappears. Mm. 13-year-old Eugene Martin left his home at approximately 5 a.m. to deliver Des Moines Register on the south side of Des Moines, just seven miles from where Johnny had disappeared. Uh, Eugene normally delivered papers with his older stepbrother, but on this day he went alone too and disappeared. Witnesses say they saw Martin talking to a clean-cut white male in his 30s sometime between 5 and 5.45 a.m. Some stated the two appeared to be engaged in a friendly father-son sort of conversation. No evidence of what happened to Eugene was ever uncovered. In September 1984, a dairy farm in Des Moines, Iowa, begins printing photographs of both Johnny and Eugene on their milk cartons. And the idea of local independent dairies, this is their idea, which I find so fascinating. It's awesome. They put the photos of missing children in their area on milk cartons so that customers who purchase the milk would be encouraged to look for the missing children or keep an eye out. Um, this half starts in the early 80s. There had been no system in the United States for tracking mis- missing children nationwide. So by 1985, 700 of the 1,600 independent dairies in the United States had adopted the practice. It's unbelievable. It's so smart. Uh-huh. I, w- I would love love to know who like who was the first well ooh, ooh. if you listen to 99 invisible's episode called milk carton kids <gasps> they tell you the whole fucking story it's great awesome yeah. i'm literally going to write that down it's so good and it became this like part of our childhood right yes. milk carton kids you go in the morning and sit down at the kitchen table to eat cereal and there'd be the face of some kid who fucking looked like someone you went to school with 
right there and they were gone. They were gone. Terrifying. And we all thought there was like mass fucking murderers everywhere and we were going to get kidnapped any minute. Well, and that idea that it was like they finally were taking it into their hands of this is an item that everyone looks at every morning. Why not use it for good? Totally. And get awareness and Yes, it devastated and no, traumatized. I'm not, no, I'm not I mean, it should though, because it was like on top of, um, Adam the, Walsh. Yeah. Well, I was going to say like the constant threat of nuclear war, right. which I remember just constantly obsessing on yeah. as a kid. The, when, when the milk carton kid thing started, it was just like, oh yeah, like things are not right. great. You're just, it's a ticking time bomb until things go to fucking hell. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's an incredible campaign, but it is just as as the same thing as kids having no supervision. Well, and it's the I think it's the discomfort and it's what people don't like about true crime, which is the reality Mm -hmm. of it. It's yeah, you have to sit there and go no matter what age you are and go. Somebody took this boy and no one found him and no one knows what happened and we have to do something that's uncomfortable. And up until that point, I'm sure people would be like, that's you can't do that. You can't put those pictures on that. And it's like, no, somebody has to do something because there's no one else is going to do it. Yeah. I just love that. Overall, the campaigns didn't have much success in bringing missing children home in the end and was criticized for overstating the risk of child abductions. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Which brought about a type of moral panic called stranger danger. Was it moral panic? Remember, it totally was. It was like us versus them. Don't talk to strangers. Those people are going to hurt you. And really, this fucking fear should be in your own circle and in your own life. True, true. Yeah, that's right. Um, So the phrase is intended to encapsulate the danger that is associated with adults uh, who children don't know and to reinforce the public fears of strangers as potential pedophiles, despite sexual abuse of children being more likely to occur in families, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So it kind of, oh, the 80s. The 80s. Well, it was like someone do something. Yeah. So it's not going to be the best plan. Yeah. But it definitely raised awareness and it, and it did happen. Yeah. You know, 100%. It did happen. Um, and that's like a really good point of this is that because they didn't even know what pedophiles were at the time. Johnny's parents, in their mind, he had been held, he was being held for ransom and that's why he was kidnapped. So in the first, you know, interviews that they do, they're pleading to the captors to just let them know what they want and they'll give it. Like, when is the ransom coming in? They didn't understand <sighs> this whole, you know, pedophile, uh, you know, um, stranger danger abduction. It just wasn't even on their fucking radars. Yeah. In fact, a third Des Moines kid, 13-year-old Mark James Warren Allen, also disappeared from Des Moines in 1986. On March 29th, he told his mother he planned to walk to a friend's house down the street and then just fucking vanished. So basically every two years this was happening in Des Moines? Yeah. So Noreen was infuriated by the indifference of local law enforcement. And her son went missing. They fucking did nothing. And she becomes increasingly vocal about the inadequacy of law enforcement's investigation of missing children. She establishes the Johnny Gosh Foundation in 1982, through which she visited schools and speaks at seminars about sexual predators and warning kids. She lobbies for the Johnny Gosh Bill, a state legislation which would mandate immediate police response to reports of missing children, <laughs> as it fucking should be and yeah. is today. The bill became law in Iowa in 1984. Um, and Noreen, alongside John Walsh, who, of course, became an advocate for abducted children when his six-year-old son, Adam Walsh, who we all, 
if you're from that time, you fucking remember. Yeah. Had been kidnapped from a mall in Hollywood, Florida in 1981. Uh, they, they, so Noreen with uh, John Walsh testified before the U.S. Department of Justice. And in turn, they fucking ended up providing $10 million to establish the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And that was Noreen Gosh. She was one of the parents who fucking helped get that um, passed. Amazing. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. And meanwhile, people are calling her fucking crazy because she won't let it go and she doesn't think her son is dead and she refuses to fucking give up the fight. They're calling her like nuts and stuff. And she's just like, fuck this shit. It's like clearly she didn't go crazy if she was able to then eventually right. get a law passed. Exactly. Like it, you know, yeah. there's one thing to be completely lose your mind over the loss. Right. But clearly she was not crazy. Yeah. And people were like insulting her for not crying on TV and, you know, when she was playing. And she was like, if my son is watching, I want him to see that his mom is taking control and like doing shit about it. Yeah. Not just crying, you know? Right. Which is amazing. Um, Noreen alleges that throughout her fight to find out what happened to her son um, and her battle with law enforcement to give a shit, she began receiving death threats warning her to back off and to stop making waves. And she later says that what she didn't realize at the time was that she was, quote, knocking on the back door of what became the Franklin Credit Union investigation. Mm. (sighs) I wish I didn't have to include this in there. It's like... This is it's okay. Let's just get through this. Okay. Okay. And I want your opinion on all this too. Mm -hmm. In 1988, authorities looked into allegations that prominent citizens of Nebraska, a uh, as well as high-level U.S. politicians, were involved in a child sex ring. Alleged abuse victims claimed that children in foster care were being sexually abused by extreme higher ups, including the CIA, the military, and politicians in Washington D.C., and being covered up by those underneath them. So they alleged that there was this big child sex ring where they take underprivileged kids out of foster care, or you know, they would groom them and then take them all over the country to you know perform at these parties and to be auctioned off it's all horrendous it's horrendous yeah the claims primarily centered around lawrence king jr aka larry king which gets really confusing when you're listening to other (laughs) podcasts about it who ran the now defunct franklin community federal credit union in omaha nebraska and it was alleged that the ring was a cult of devil worshippers involved in the mutilation sacrifice and cannibalism of numerous children that was a quote then in 1980, disinformation. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Anarchy. Then in 1989, 21-year-old Paul A. Bonacchi told his attorney, John DeCamp, that he had been abducted into the sex ring as a teenager and been forced to participate in Johnny Gosh's kidnapping. He was there and he participated in it. Wow. And that Johnny had been sub- subsequently brought into the sex ring. And Noreen later met with him and said he told her things that, on- that only her son would have known. Um. Banaki accused Republican Party activist and businessman Larry King Jr. of running an underage sex ring and victimizing him since an early age. In 1990, a um, county grand jury found the allegations to be, quote, a carefully crafted hoax. And Paul Banaki and others were indicted on state perjury charges. So this fucking is an insane story that actually last podcast on the left. There's like three episodes about this called The Satanic Government mm. to cover because there's so much information. Yeah. Okay. So then I put as my header. <laughs> According to Noreen, and this is part of the documentary, according to Noreen, um, in March of 1997, 15 years after her son had disappeared, she's awakened around 2.30 a.m. by a knock at her apartment door. And waiting outside, 
is her son, Johnny Gosh. This kills me. I know, me too. He's now 27 years old. He's accompanied by an unidentified man who just kind of like accompanies him and keeps quiet. Noreen invites Johnny in. She said she had immediately recognized him as her son. He showed her his birthmark on her on his chest to prove it. She was just like, this is him. And she says that he stayed for about an hour and a half and basically confirmed her fears that he had been kidnapped and forced into a pedophile sex ring and was now out but feared for his life. So he had gone into hiding and just wanted to come see her. Oh, I know. Um, yeah, so this can be all debated online, but I, I just, I think either this poor woman, I think it was either a hoax that was played on her because there had been others or, you know, just a, a fantasy that she really wanted to believe. Yeah. Which is totally understandable. Totally. Or it fucking happened. I don't know. I mean, the idea that someone would pull a hoax like that, it's like you're the ultimate psychopath. Absolutely. If you actually want to go face to face and fuck with a person's emotions like that, it's unbelievable. But yeah. Uh, there are sociopaths out there that would fucking get off on that shit entirely. I mean, how many how many um, kidnapping stories have we done where there's always the call of the person right. who has nothing to do with it, just trying to get money? I mean, and she, you know, in the beginning, they gave out their phone number. This has been happening to them for the fucking past fifteen years. There's there had been a ransom of ten thousand dollars where she got a you know went to the spot. There was a letter addressed to her. She gave it over to police, and they were like, "That's nothing." She had been blown off by all these you know people for fucking years, and all these people calling and you know hoaxes and yeah basically it's because there was no actual official right. arm of the law helping her right. having to do it all herself kind of opened her up to all that. totally Pan- it's pandemonium and to have to constantly process and deal with those traumas over and over again on top of the original yeah. i mean horrible no it's horrible um I I kind of I did some searching online and I of course looked at our um our my favorite murder Gmail and I saw a couple people mention this connection um to kind of it's kind of what happens to Jacob Wetterling the, uh, he was kidnapped sexually assaulted and murdered by a single suspect which I think in this case makes way more sense mm-hmm. you know um, it just so happens that in the early 80s, there's a child killer operating out of Nebraska. And remember, someone noticed those Nebraska plates. Mm-hmm. So on September 18th, 1983, almost exactly a year before Johnny went missing, 13-year-old Danny Joe Eberly went out on his early morning paper route in the small town of Bellevue, Nebraska. Usually, Danny was accompanied by his older brother. On this day, he wasn't. At about 8.30 a.m., calls from residents start coming in that they hadn't received their papers. I mean... Can you fucking it's just chilling. It's like it's a direct MO. Yeah, it's exactly the same. It's a person. It's like the story that I did somewhere in the UK. I don't think it was Ireland. So mm-hmm. in the UK where it was the guy that just waited when um, young women were walking home from like si- village dances. Yeah. Remember that? Oh, yeah. And he killed like yeah. a bunch of people in a row. It's just like, oh, somebody gets their idea the yep. one way it works. And then you just keep doing it over and over. That's right. Um, and so outside of, of a home where Danny delivered his newspapers, his parents found his bicycle abandoned and his undelivered newspapers. There was no sign of a struggle or a kidnapping, but he was just he had just vanished. Mm. Days later, on September 21st, 1983, searchers found the bound, gagged and partially clothed body of Danny Joe Everly just four miles away from his abandoned bicycle. So this was the difference. But like in the um, Joseph Wetterling case, he buried him, Mm -hmm. you know, so 
who the fuck knows. Almost three months later, on January 11th, 1984, this fucking badass, astute preschool teacher named Barbara Weaver, um, she helps apprehend the murderer when she's parking her school, her car in the parking lot at school that morning early. She sees a fucking creepy car drive by. She sees the face of the dude and she's like, that looks like the police sketch that a witness had made. Yes, girl. He's driving by her school. She writes down his license plate and sees her looking and he gets out of his car and he threatens her with a fucking knife, <laughs> but she gets out of there and fucking had his license plate number, which is amazing. He yeah. Dri- he drives off. Less than she called the cops, obviously. Less than two hours later, police arrest John Jobert in his barracks at Ofoot Air Force Base. At an Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. 20-year-old John Jobert fit the FBI profile, Robert Ressler's profile, to a fucking T. Hmm. You know, including the fact that he volunteered in his assistant scoutmaster to be closer to children. Ugh. It's so creepy. He eventually confesses to Danny's murder, as well as the murders of a, a local boy named Christopher Walden, who was 12, who fucking mis- disappeared and died in, mis- in similar circumstances. And then investigators are able to link him to the stabbing death of 11-year-old Ricky Stenson in Oakdale, Maine. And oh as God. you and I know very well, um, Nebraska and Iowa share a fucking... State line. That's right. They're right <laughs> next to each other. Yeah. And Be- Bellevue, Nebraska, where these murders occurred, is less than a three-hour drive from West Des Moines, Iowa, where Johnny Gosh disappeared. And clearly the guy's doing it in different areas. Right. So, uh, like, And he's in the Air Force, so he's probably being stationed at different places. He has oh. to drive and shit. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. At 12.04 a.m. on July 17th, 1996, he's put to death in Nebraska State Penitentiary's electric chair. And though uh, John Jobert's only uh, other known victims' bodies were found not far from where they were abducted, and therefore authorities were able to link them. There were bite marks and fucking similar mutilations and all kinds of awful stuff. There's never been any sign of Johnny, so they can't really, you know, link it. Link it, and it's just speculation. But it's sound. I mean, the problem is there's no probably no shortage of fucking pedophiles and murderers in that area at the time. Sure, you know. Uh, and he was in prison when the second kid, um, Eugene, went missing. So he couldn't have done that one. So maybe it was a copycat. Or maybe there's just a totally different fucking psychopath roaming yes. around. As for Noreen, she and John Sr. divorced in 1983. And she still lives in Des Moines where she teaches yoga classes. <sighs> I know. And continues her mission to help families of missing children. Back when Johnny disappeared in 1982, when a child disappeared in the U.S., authorities responded without much care and, or caution. The Gosh case and Noreen's plight to, fight, uh, to find her son was one, along with a, several other in that period, that experts say transformed and improved how law enforcement handled missing children and helped increase the likelihood of missing children being found. Yeah. Um, it's been 37 years since Johnny Gosh went missing. Despite her grief and a system that turned her into the enemy, Noreen Gosh said, quote, you have a choice. Are you going to rise up and do something or are you going to sit there and feel bad? And she also said, you show me somebody who isn't a little controversial when it comes to making positive changes. And I'll show you someone who's never done a damn thing in their life. Oh, Noreen. And that's the story of the disappearance of Johnny Gosh. Oh, fuck. Do you need a shower? I mean, 
I'm glad that that the milk carton thing happened and it was an overcorrection sure. all the way in the other direction. It needed to be. It needed basically what needed to happen is this matters. Children matter. Yeah. We can't we can't wait 72 hours. We can't wait 48 hours. Right. We can't wait any hours. Well, you think about all the kids, you know, all the like crazy shit that happened because of these milk cartons that were overcorrecting. But then you think about the like, you know, the police chief in this town who saw that. And so when a kid went missing, he actually acted and otherwise he wouldn't have. Because yes. He was alerted to the fact that this happened because the dairy farmers are going to fucking rise up and be like, That's we'll right. do it if you won't do That's it. That's right. We'll do it. We'll do it with Noreen. That's right. It's beautiful. That's right. Fuck your um, gluten. Your uh, what's gluten it? allergy. Fuck your lactose intolerance. <laughs> We're taking care of shit for real. I mean. I, that's what I love about it is people just going, we don't care what the actual setup is. We're right. going to do something. And about we're not going to listen to, you know, to authority figures, even if to authority figures who have too much to lose by doing it wrong. Right. Therefore, they don't want to do anything at all. Right. It's like slowly watching the process. We get to look back over all these years because what that's been 37. God, that's so long. I know. And it's like the changes that have happened. Like yeah. you going Robert wrestlers. Um, he fit the, uh, the, the profile the profile almost gave me chills was like thank god now we're talking about him doing profiles totally. now we're in the mind hunter part of the story where yeah. people are actually going this is something we have to track and pay attention to and talk about well i think that now local police are overcompensating when a kid goes missing it's better to have overreacted yes than it is to be completely wrong let's hope they're down fishing by the river by themselves totally that's the dream but yeah. don't fucking rely on it no and i don't think anyone really does anymore i don't think so and i don't think think the public would let people do that anymore. I hope not. I hope not. Yeah. Good one. Thank you. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God. Yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. Oh, can I tell you something really quickly mm -hmm. on the podcast? Yes. You just said, thank God. I just Vince. said, thank God for Vince April. Do you know that your dad and my husband text each other. <laughs> Are you aware? Vince, we're watching TV and Vince looks down at his phone and goes, <laughs> and I go, what? 
He goes, oh, uh, Jim just sent me something about what Bud is Budweiser. <laughs> a funny joke. He's like, anytime there's something in the in the news about Budweiser, we text it to each other. My dad is. You shouldn't have never given Vince's phone number. the moon. <laughs> because my dad sends me like political cartoons of Trump doing some like flushing in right. the toilet 15 times right, or whatever. Right, yeah. The latest thing. And it just stresses me out. And I never know what to say yeah. where I'm like, ha ha, uh, the Our world life, is burning. This is the worst. Yeah. This is horrible. So when uh, I think I said that he told me to tell Vince something and I'm like, you should just text him yourself because yeah. I know you guys have each other's phone. Don't be coy. <laughs> and now they're just it's sweet. They're though. doing it. It's lovely. Because Vince, is, I think, I think maybe Jim kind of reminds him of his dad who passed away. So yeah, they're the old school types. Yeah, yeah. Who drink? Vince doesn't drink Budweiser, but he pretends to for he your dad. He pretends to drink Budweiser for my dad. That's right. Is because he knows how much that matters. That's right. And I told you when you and I first met and first started doing this show and we first went, started dating when we first started dating Vince <laughs> no we went to that party at Pat Walsh's house mm-hmm. and Vince and I talked and I later told you he did a thing that was so my dad where he as he was telling me a story his with the hand he was holding his beer he pushed my shoulder <laughs> for a, like effect right. to be like hey yeah. and then I was like where am I <laughs> am I home with all my uncles Aww. like it was the craziest thing so it wouldn't surprise me if if Vince is like, oh, that's how my dad used to be, because I, I feel like there's just style style similarities. Gruff, this gruff fucking man. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then remind me someday to tell you that I had a dream about our you're on my wedding. <laughs> Talk about it later. Guess what? I hadn't done my homework. There was all this homework about it. And you didn't, I didn't write your vows. God damn no, it. No, you we you came fucking ready, and I was just like, can I have another day? <laughs> Can we do this wedding on a Sunday, please? <laughs> okay. Our wedding. <laughs> it was very romantic. That's for episode 300. That's right. We'll have a live wedding. <laughs> Stream that live wedding, girls. <clears throat> okay. I'm going to do leftover homework from when we were on the great island of Ireland. Homework is homework, man. Right? It got done. I just didn't want to do it because I was like, oh, I don't know. And then I found one that was I could put more jokes into. Right. Because that's my priority. That's a good one. But now let's make Steven laugh. No. <laughs> um, but this is this is one of those ones where it's like it's a small town, like a ma- like a family massacre. Ooh, yeah. that's awful. Yes. And okay. so I thought I'd tell you all about it. Great. It's the Malahide massacre. Uh-huh. You know this one? Is it the barn one? It's a family. But it happened in a barn? No. Then I don't know it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this um, the uh, majority of information. So the Irish Times is the, the I believe Dublin newspaper. Mm-hmm. Please check that, Stephen. <laughs> I'm almost positive, um, but they have a series called, or they did at least from when this article is from, called Lost Leads, which highlights lesser known stories that were featured in the Times from as far back as 1859. Wow! So if you pull up one of these stories, then the side column becomes all the other How ones. About How about these? How about these? How about you never? go to sleep ever again so good yeah i mean like it's so it's the best idea so this article uh was written the one about this uh, massacre was written by a writer named dean ruxton another source that i used was a website called oldyellowwalls.org and then of course the classic murderpedia so this starts on wednesday march 31st 1926 a man named henry mccabe a gardener arrives for work at the la mancha house in malahide which is just outside Dublin. Um, it's 8 a.m. 
p.m. And um, he's just there for work. So this house is impressive. It's a three-story Georgian home. Mm. It's on about 30 acres of land in this uh, wealthy seaside neighborhood. And the house is owned by the McDonald family. It's four adult siblings that live together. So it's Annie, who's 56, Joseph, who's 55, Peter, who's 51, and Alice, who's 47. Can you imagine still living with your sister? I mean... The the fighting, the volume alone. Uh, um, the passive it. aggression. There's four of them? There's four of them. Um, and they're all retired. Okay. So um, they bought the house um, in 1918 after retiring from their successful grocery, drapery, and general store in County Galway, oh, they, which is where my grandpa's yeah. from. Represent Galway. So, yeah, I guess they they made a ton of money, and then they were like, let's go buy this rad house. Maybe they like to party together. Maybe. I mean, the, the from the Irish people that I know, they're yeah. very they're very clicky yes. and clanny. Like, they would have been hanging out anyway, so they might as well yes. live together. Yeah, entirely. Okay. Okay. That's how my family is. It sounds kind of fun for like a weekend. Yeah. Well, it's fun. And then, you know, throw some beer and whiskey in there and uh, maybe a fiddle and a story. Everyone's got their party fists. piece. Yep. <laughs> There's going to be fighting on the You're front lawn. You, that's a full weekend. Um, you don't need money for other extracurricular activities. It all happens in the house. Love okay. It. So, um, so they've all lived there. Uh, although they had recently decided to put the house up for sale. So there had been ads about the house running in the local paper for a few days before. Mm. Um, so when Henry gets to the house on the morning of March 31st, he notices, he thinks something's off. He notices there's smoke coming out of both chimneys and, but there's no other signs that anybody's awake. No other lights are on or anything. Mm-hmm. And then when he gets closer, he sees smoke is billowing out of a bathroom window. So then he's like, oh shit. He runs to the back door of the house um, and finds that it's been broken open. So he goes inside as far as he can um, where, before the flames yeah. are, you know, keep him from going in any further. And he calls for the McDonald's, but nobody responds. So he runs into town um, to get the fire brigade. And on his way, he passes a neighbor, Mrs. Riley, um, and he tells her about the fire. She then tells a police officer and a, a, a local neighbor mm-hmm. I, I guess think the neighbors the local. only the, the only kind of neighbor you can be. <laughs> and they uh the, so those two guys run to the house um before the firefighters get there to see what's going on and um they break into a basement room mm-hmm. so I'm sure they went around looking in the windows yeah. and the basement room was where one of the mm-hmm. um employ- family employees they had two employees that lived at the house and one was this man James Clark who was 41 years old and his bedroom was down in the basement so they uh, bro- break open the window they see that he's partially dressed on his bed they drag him out of the house to save him from mm-hmm. the flames but once they get him outside on the lawn they find that he is already dead but not from the fire he has defensive wounds all over his forearms and a deep gash on the left side of his skull like he's been hit with a sharp narrow metal object perhaps a blow poke oh what's up the staircase yeah right um, so then the fire brigade arrives a- around 8.50 a.m., put out the fire. But at this point, the roof has collapsed. The interior is almost completely demolished. Uh-huh. Um, uh, 
so then, uh, aside from James Clark, firefighters pull out five more bodies from the house. It's Annie, Joseph, Peter, Alice, their servant, Mary McGowan, who's 50 years old. Mm. Um, Annie and Alice were found in the same room upstairs. Peter is found in his room. Um, they're all, all of their body, bodies are charred beyond recognition. Nice. Um, and then Peter's body was a down in a different room and it was laying there. It had been stripped bare and then laying on top of him was a, um, a wool singlet and a pair of pants, but just laying on top of his body like someone else put it there. Weird. And then nearby, a fire poker with brain matter on it <gasps> was next to him. Okay. So on the day of Why the event, cover him with clothes. We'll, we'll see. So on the day of the event, uh, March 31st, the firefighters inspect the house um, to determine the cause of the fire. And they see that it had started in several spots throughout the house. So um, the theory was somebody walked around and pouring a spirit of liquor mm-hmm. or something flammable around to light it in several places. Mm-hmm. Um, then the medical examiner finds trace amounts of arsenic um, in some of the bodies, not enough to kill, but enough to weaken um, them. And so... So basically, the theory is the killer would have had a physical advantage because he wouldn't have been able to take four adults or four, six adults at right. one time. Right. Um, and because the defensive wounds that were found on James Clark's body um, and the fact that only some of the bodies were burned, but all of them were dead, the police conclude that everyone was murdered first and then the fire was set intentionally to burn the evidence. Mm. Um, also, when the house is searched afterwards, there's no valuables found inside. Yeah, I bet. And these are rich people, basically. God, how terrifying, like, to live in that area and just that horrible thing happen. Just a, like, oh, it's a house fire. Oh, no, it's actually. Yeah. It's a murder with a house fire on top and of it. And it's not just one person alone, which would be easy to fucking, you know, kill. It's like six fucking adults. Six adults. That's terrifying. All around a house. Yeah. Totally. Okay, so... As authorities search for solid leads, of course, the rumor mill kicks into high gear. So some neighbors are gossiping that the McDonald siblings had been fighting and maybe those fights led to the murder. Others talk about how strange it is for four adult siblings in their late uh, 40s, (laughs) early 50s to all be unmarried and living together. I thought maybe it was just for the the time it was normal. I mean, maybe it could have been. But I think in this situation where suddenly everyone's dead, people are just like okay what could have happened and then that opens to um it starts to imply that maybe the murders were born out of there was sexual abuse there was incest Mm -hmm. there was mental illness there were things going on in the house like what are the family secrets essentially but close friends of the mcdonald's vehemently deny any of these stories um they say they're incapable of murder and that that none of that other stuff was was happening um so, but either way, of course, local newspapers uh, uh, go crazy on this story, and hundreds of people travel from all over just to come and take a look at the house. Because, of course, it's like this is a this is a six person murder house, totally. um, and, and we don't have TV. No, we don't have TV, and this is what human beings do. Right? It just is. Um, okay, so on April 2nd, 1926, the police bring in Henry McCabe for questioning since it's, you know, obviously suspicious. He's like a number one suspect gardener, because yeah. he's the gardener and he's the only person that was a regular at that house that survived. Yeah. Um, 
was not attacked in any way. So he gives his account of what happened in the days leading up to the fire. He said the night before the fire, he claims that he sat at the kitchen table with Joe reading the paper until about 8 p.m. And then he left to attend a wake. And then he um, leaves the wake the next morning at 7.45 a.m. Holy shit. Because that's how the Irish do wakes. Is that some passing out at fucking 5.30 a.m. and then waking up at 7? Hell yeah. On that's, the couch? You get to the wake. You have eight beers. Yeah. You sing some songs. Uh-huh. You cry. You put your arms around people. You do this. You do that. Yeah. You wake up. You have some toast. <laughs> um, wow. He basically stopped home to freshen up around 745 the next morning. And then he goes to work at the McDonald's where he finds the house fire. Um, he tells police that he'd never really seen the family fight per se. But in the weeks prior to the fire, they did seem quieter than usual. Huh. Um, he claims he had, hadn't seen Annie or Peter in a few days, but that Joe told him that they were resting in bed because they were sick. And according to Henry, both he and uh, the I think it was either two or three cooks that had worked in the house over the years that Henry had worked there. Um, they all said and noticed that Joe almost never spoke to anyone in the family. He mostly if he was going to speak to anybody, it would be to Peter. But even then, it wasn't warm or, you know, like brother to brother. Yeah. It was polite and businesslike. Um huh. And Henry also claims that the neighborhood kids called Alice the Mad Woman of La Mancha, which seems totally like something kids would <laughs> you know, say. You know how kids love talking about La Mancha. You know, they they, they love to make literary references. That's right. Um, uh, because she'd sometimes run out of the house looking disheveled and acting hysterical. Oh, God, that's scary. Mm-hmm. And then he also says that Peter was known to run in circles in the yard and throw, uh, quote, throw himself down on the ground and laugh like a schoolboy. What? Booze, baby. That's booze. Oh, okay. Um, both of them could be. But yeah. basically, Henry, he tells police when McDonald's first, the McDonald's first moved in. That's two L's, not a D. Got it. Um, when they first moved in, that he had been asked by the siblings to dig a hole to bury a safe under their porch. Mm-hmm. And then three years later, he was asked to dig the safe back up so they could return it to the store. Um, he's he's telling the police this story when they're just asking, like, what happened at the house? Right. And suddenly he's talking about this safe. Um and at one point, his he searched and they find the keys to that safe in his pocket Uh-oh. while he's being questioned by police. Um, but other than that, Henry McCabe, Henry McCabe is a husband and father of nine. So as far as anyone knows, he's an upstanding citizen. Right. So after taking Henry's statement, the police deduced that maybe Peter McDonnell, quote, must have lost his reason during the night and having slain the whole household, set the place on fire and succumbed himself to heart failure or was suffocated by the smoke or else poisoned himself. Okay. So rock solid theory of what happened. I got, I'm on board. <laughs> he killed everybody and then kind of died <laughs> afterwards. In some way. In some strange way. Um, but when the time of death is, uh, is revealed, um, for all of the victims had been dead by, had been dead since 5 p.m. Monday evening. So Wednesday morning is when Henry found the house on fire. Okay. So the coroner's like, they've been dead for a full day, if not more. Okay. But it's also 1922? 26. 26. 
I mean, can the coroner be like, oh, to my deductions, it's, I don't, we have a pocket watch. It's Let's take a look at it's it. It's definitely a guesstimation. <laughs> and we do know that some of the bodies were charred beyond. Right. But the, the, the problem with that is it directly conflicts with Henry's story that he was sitting at the table reading the paper with Joe the night before. Got it. So then they're like, okay, well, the, even if it's not the full, like two days before, right. something's, something's off. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Then the police discover that the pants Henry McCabe were wearing when he was first detained actually belonged to Peter McDonald. Uh-oh. The body that was stripped bare. Oh. Why why would he do that and then wear it to work? Well, why would he? So, uh this is found after um a a guard uh a police officer, guardie, huh. um reports that Henry had asked him um to, to ha- have his wife lie for him and say that Peter had um, sent him the pants like that he had been given the pants long ago yeah. and that he had already owned the pants but he basically tried to get a cop to tell the wife to tell that lie that's not gonna and the cop's like fly. got you I'm gonna go ahead and tell my <laughs> boss about <laughs> yeah, this yeah have it instead real quick so the police then began to theorize that if Henry was the one that was responsible for um, these murders, that at some point during the murder of all these people, he could have somehow soiled his own pants mm. and then basically um, gotten rid of those and taken Peter's pants off of him and put them on because they were really nice gray, uh-huh. um, uh, like newer pants. Slacks. <laughs> Maybe a, a woolen slack. A slack. Um, real high though, because yeah. it's 1926. Oh, yeah. So they come Pleated. right up to the nipple. So many pleats. Um, and basically, so he, he got rid of his pants, like let them burn in the fire. And that's why, um, Peter's body was found with just the singlet right. and another pair like, of pants. He was like, they're going to burn anyway. So it's, you're not even going to know. I don't have to dress them. And it'll look like, oh, these were his. They're, yeah. he, they're here. Right. Um, so essentially once they, once they kind of put all of these things together, uh, the police get Henry to f- sign a statement of confession. Huh. So. Henry McCabe is formally charged with murder in April 20, in April of 1926. Um, so even though he, he signed the statement of confession, he then pleads not guilty and man- maintains his innocence. Um, so the judge is worried that the statement was coerced. His trial begins in November of 1926. Uh, prosecutors claim that Henry is the only logical suspect. He has access to the, the La Mancha house, um, but none of their explanations for Henry's motive are are that good. Yeah. So they search Henry's house and they do find clothing with blood stains on it but he's a gardener right. so you could ju- it could just e- easily be his and cuz it's out, he's out working with big shears and getting cut in brambles and bushes and stuff maybe and he has nine kids who and are he is constantly falling and doing <laughs> and, stupid and doing shit. all kinds of crazy shit yeah. teeth falling out randomly <laughs> lip biting yeah they don't find any valuables in henry's house so like thinking that all the things that were missing right from the la mancha house might be found there they don't find any um they uh they claim that that uh, henry was scared that he was going to lose his job if the mcdonald's um sold the house but that didn't make sense because he had actually worked there for the family before the mcdonald's bought it so he had just remain the gardener and he's gonna double lose his job if the fucking occupants die right so um 
So the defense relies on the neighborhood rumors about the McDonald's to build their case. They say it's entirely possible that either Peter or Alice McDonald could have gone mad mm-hmm. with the, it, it, you know, everybody implying that they already might have been a little crazy yeah. here or there, yeah. that they had just snapped and killed everyone in the house before killing themselves. Um, as for the arsenic, the prosecutors note that there's arsenic in one of the gardening chemicals that Henry used. Um, in, oh. in the garden, defense comes back and is like, he does not extract arsenic from sure. these from these gardening chemicals. Like, um, and he didn't live in the house, so he didn't have a way to slip arsenic into their food, even if he did know how to. Huh. Um, and also, the defense it says poison is a woman's weapon. Oh, come um, on now. And so <laughs> it's kind of true. And so they say it's more likely Alice would have poisoned anybody if it was anybody that did it. Um, so it's a six day trial. And the judge, Justice O'Byrne, tells the jury, if you are satisfied that McCabe is the only person who could have committed this crime, you must find him guilty. But if you have any reasonable doubt, you must give him the benefit of it. So the jury goes and deliberates for 50 minutes mm-hmm. and comes back finding him guilty of. <gasps> All of the murders. Oh. And he's sentenced to death by hanging. I don't think he did it. Okay. So, on December 9th, 1926, he's taken to the gallows. When asked if he has any any last words, he says, All I have to say is, God forgive them. I am the victim of bribery and perjury. Mm. So... He ma- Henry maintains his innocence all the way till the end. But after his hanging... <gasps> Some damning facts are revealed about his life before. Oh, come on, man. I was fucking rooting for you. No, I know. Look, a lot of people were, including See, that it. judge who seemed like yeah. this all could be just like they want to get this taken care sure. of. Um, so these are all things that they couldn't talk about in during the court case. Okay. But in his youth, he moved to England where he had several run ins with the law and um, they they weren't defined it particularly, but he did go to, he did serve prison time for right. them. Well, who among us? I mean, and then when he was released, he moved to Birmingham and there he started dating a wo- woman, but he's soon arrested for attempting to murder her. Don't do that. He serves another 15 month sentence for attempted murder and then eventually moves to just outside Dublin. Okay. So but none of this information can be used during the trial because of the code of criminal procedure that disallows the court mm-hmm. from using prior charges to argue their case. Mm. So basically some people are kind of like, well, then this, this is almost like if people were worried or it was up in the air, or yeah, whatever. Well, at least we have this, these prior convictions that right. maybe, maybe support that. Sure. But some, t- maybe some people aren't sleeping that well. Maybe some people still not, aren't sure. And then seven years <gasps> later in 1933, a local boy named Denning, Denning. His last name is Denning. Oh. He's digging in the garden of a house <gasps> on Church Road in Malahide uh-huh. when he digs up two silver watches. <gasps> One is inscribed to James Clark, who was the, the man who lived in the basement. Uh-huh. Oh. And the other is inscribed to J. McD. It's said that when Henry was alive, he was the gardener who planted the shrubbery at the house <gasps> on Church Road oh. in that particular garden. So he's like, I got to do something with this shit and fucking bury he the He buried that 
loot all over, probably not just in this house. And because you know that thing where people are guilty and they start talking because they think they're smarter than everybody. So he tells the story of burying the safe, which basically tries to like mislead them and like have them go in a different direction by over talking. Yes. But I think people don't understand that in your subconscious, the reason you think of the things you're talking about, it's like you're giving yourself away. And the idea that he's talking about burying the safe, which is like clearly he knew there were valuables. They had they had money, they had stuff hidden, but also it's like burying stuff. Yeah. Like it's a whole area that he wanted to talk about. Yeah. And anyway, so it's not it's not hard the hardest of evidence, but like it would be interesting to know if they found any more stuff buried in yards Girl, around Malheim. Let's grab a fucking metal detector and boop, head boop, there. Boop, boop, the boop. detector is season three. And that's the <laughs> harrowing story of the Malahide massacre. Oh, fuck. Boom. See, I was going for them being the family, either one of them murdering everyone else or them, not them, all uh, killing themselves because I don't think the servants would have done it as well if it was like the four siblings, maybe. But I I right. definitely thought it was the guy who had the clothes laid on top of him. Yeah, because he it, clearly he was the last. Right. And or, maybe he like wanted some modesty. So he covered himself up and then... Right. The end. But now I don't think so anymore. Mm-mm. And it's interesting because back then it they just had to kind of there was so little science yeah. of any kind. Plus, everything's burnt. Yeah. So they just have to go through and like really piece stuff together. Yeah. And you can absolutely see. And we know that it happens all the time. It's like, oh, the gardener, the guy that the reported it. Yeah. Pull in whoever sent him right. to the gallows. I was like, like bullshit. Yeah. And this whole thing. But like the idea that he had the safe. The keys to the safe in his pocket. Yes. He was wearing one of the dead men's pants. Yes. Like there were so many things that were just like, he dude. Had a ton of his little kid's teeth blood all over his <laughs> other pants that they found. Why don't you just wash those <laughs> pants? <laughs> when your kid's teeth keep falling out of their fucking head. Why don't you keep backup pants in the gardener shed <laughs> where they should be? Um, that's a good lesson to learn. Always keep backup pants. I mean, you know that I live by it as my great fear in the world is something happens to my pants and then I have to borrow (laughs) pants from somebody whose pants are too small. It's like a nightmare I live with. I didn't know that. Yeah. Keep those sweats in the backseat. I feel like... 200 episodes in and we're still learning stuff about each other. <laughs> oh my god, it's so fresh. Good job. That was great. That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I mean, it really was a bit of a... Um, no, that was so fun. I mean, it was not fun. This is not fun, everyone. <laughs> it, this is not... This is a... But it's interesting. Also, it's interesting. because when you're in a, a place like that where it's so... Um, everything has that small village, small yeah. town feel where the influence of what people say and the... It's same thing. If Noreen Gosh being like oh she's crazy yeah. where once you get the like public opinion stirred up of like yeah. oh the, you know those people in the house right. they all killed each other where it's just like oh well, yeah they're they're not around to defend themselves if right. they were private people then you can kind of say anything yeah after the fact crazy man um that's it that's it we uh we decided our fucking hooray is gonna be you you guys it it <laughs> you said it like Janet. <laughs> All of you, you guys, out there, thanks so much in the ether <laughs> listening. <laughs> this life has turned out really fucking insane and unexpected, and uh, not at all what I had <laughs> in mind. Four years ago, no, uh, for the rest of my existence, and it's completely changed that, and I am 
so not just, you know, not just like material things and how crazy this is and like fucking our book being on Audible's top fucking audiobooks mm-hmm. of the 2019. Like not just shit like that, but like the fact that there are people who really care about us who we don't know, who, yeah. you know, are out there and, and how lucky we are that we help people go to therapy and get help and get on medication and, and deal with their mental health. We feel very fucking grateful. And I, I really can't believe that we get a chance to do this with our lives and I am so um, I'm honored nice and so 200 episodes in is pretty fucking incredible it's pretty amazing I I think we should also take this time to thank Stephen Ray Morris yes who has been here since right like you were you came in in 16 17 it was Stephen, you came in such uh we needed you so much yeah. and you really and we made you do so much stuff uh-huh. for us uh-huh. and you really uh kept us going in those early times where we we didn't understand what was happening we couldn't wrap our arms around what was yeah. happening and it was so great to have you it's been so great to have you this yeah, whole time Stephen, thank, thank, you. thank you thank you and what the kids are say is ride or die <laughs> Nice. That's right. Nice one. I love it. You know, what's very satisfying to me is that um, I feel like the things that we did early on, which were almost like us being like, oh, Brene Brown, we're learning how to be more vulnerable. We're learning how to be honest about ourselves. We're learning how to say what we think is the most shameful thing about ourselves and then share that so that maybe the shame will dissipate. And instead of that, just being like a weird exercise between you and I, Mm -hmm. like uncomfortable Thanksgiving or on our podcast just as a test or whatever it really was the I don't know the fertilizer that grew this beautiful garden where you know I spent a a large portion of my life believing that I could never let anybody in to that vulnerable side or that that was some kind of that that would be a huge mistake or weakness or the worst and instead it is it's been this ridiculously unbelievable lesson in how that is the way to go. Yeah. Like that, that really is this kind of thing where we all go, Hey, guess what? Everyone's mentally ill. Yeah. They really are. And the people who can't admit it the most usually have the biggest secrets and the biggest sicknesses. Right. And we don't have to be, um, cowed by anyone. We don't have to be made to feel bad about ourselves by anyone. Mm-hmm. We get to choose how we feel and we get to choose how we deal with how we feel. And so, yes, we, you know, there's a lot of talk about like, we're scared of this and we're scared of that. And God forbid you go to the forest and all those things that we've done that's been over the top and reactionary and us telling horrible stories and then trying to think of solutions to those stories. But really at the end of the day, underneath all that, what I think I've been learning at least is the opposite, which is opening up, being honest, being direct, trying to be like, oh, here's the thing I really fear. Yeah. And it is it is it a real fear or is it just this thing that actually holds me back? And like and maybe if I just throw it out there, people at least I, I can get a little relief yeah. and then maybe somebody else gets a little relief. I think the word of the day is that it's led to so much connection mm-hmm. and that is such a beautiful thing. And I'm, I'm in awe of it and we, you and I have felt it. Yeah. And I think everyone else has felt it with each other. Yeah. And if that's our fucking legacy, then 
I then hell yeah a fucking man those that's what we need in life is more connection and even if it's scary and you have to be vulnerable about it and you have to like show your ugly bits and that you I have bo right now and like (laughs) all that fucked up shit all that fucked up shit there's someone else on the other side going yeah I have that too let's be friends let's be friends and also let's not feel so bad right because I am a product of the horrible Hollywood system that that you know that I beat my head against for 20 years mm-hmm. until this book and podcast <laughs> and all of a sudden it's like boom like, it no, all you blows open be, you have to be vulnerable yeah otherwise it won't work it won't work and b- it's audio so like <laughs> yeah. it's it doesn't like you know it's it's a whole different it's a whole different um discipline yeah. i think and it's a maybe even a harder discipline because yeah. i've gone on a billion diets right but this thing is a whole it's a whole different approach and so thank you for giving a shit mm-hmm. um for listening and participating and being with us and thank you to the people who um who get us and know uh, our intentions because yeah. we do absolutely fuck up so much yeah. and talk about things that then we only find out afterwards you know offend people or or aren't the right way to think about things or whatever there's so many people that listen to this podcast and come back in going I know you don't know this and I know you would want to know this yeah. and here's this piece of information it's people giving us the benefit of the doubt which we are um, we are honored to have and we will be careful with and take care of yeah try our best yeah exactly yeah and for sure be vulnerable to to not being perfect and to change yeah and you god you guys thank you so much 200 fucking episodes man so crazy thank you for this life-changing thing you've given us yeah and thank you for yeah this success is because of all you guys participating and wanting to and uh you know, here's to uh, at least 50 more. <laughs> <laughs> let's say 25. Can we say 25? Let's let's promise 25 <laughs> and let's aim for 50. Great. Come on. Great. Up at least until next summer. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Well, then stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye for the 200th time. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Elvis, you want a cookie?